Good evening and welcome to Navarra Live. I'm Aaron Bastani. Tonight I'm joined by Barnaby Rain, the Rain Train. Barnaby, how are you? I am delighted to be with you, Aaron, and we have a lot to cover. We do have a lot to cover. You read my mind. We're going to be talking about wealthy Tory MPs who want to scrap inheritance tax. Surprise, surprise. Police have raided a squat which was housing homeless people after being called in by nuns. Could WhatsApp messages bring down Rishi Sunak? And another hugely prominent journalist is trying to become a Tory MP. Yes, another one. First story. Geraint Davies is a Labour MP. Or at least he was until this morning because the party has now suspended him following a newspaper story in which five women allege unwanted physical and verbal sexual attention. Since then, a formal complaint has been received by the Labour Party. Here's one example of Davies' alleged behaviour, as reported by Politico, who write this. In one instance, a former Labour Party staffer alleged that Davies, then 58, approached her while she was extremely intoxicated in a parliamentary bar. He proceeded to buy her another alcoholic drink and suggested they could go back to his nearby flat, she claimed. She was 22 years at the time. Davies took her number, saying he wanted to discuss parliamentary business and subsequently sent her a string of sexually suggestive messages alluding to masturbation on the parliamentary premises. The former researcher initially responded to his messages in amusement, but later became uncomfortable and asked him to stop. Here's another instance of what the MP allegedly got up to. Separately, a Labour Party activist alleged Davies had attempted to cultivate a relationship with her when she was 19 years old, after meeting her at a conference. She claimed that he repeatedly singled her out for private chats and approached her outside work hours before inviting her to his hotel room. She declined the invitation, but she said it made her feel, quote, uncomfortable and under pressure. Other women allegedly pursued were Labour MPs, both of whom were much younger than Davies, and both alerted the whips to his behaviour, but no further action appears to have been taken. One said she made no official complaint because she didn't believe it would result in effective action. A fifth woman was a parliamentary assistant. She eventually left her job, citing a lack of support offered for staff who'd been made uncomfortable at work by MPs. Just like so many of these stories, it seems like this is only news to those outside the Westminster bubble. More from Politico here, who write this. Davies' alleged behaviour appears to have been an open secret in certain parts of the Labour Party, but no action was taken in the absence of a formal complaint. Such situations underline the difficulty of rooting out harassment claims in Parliament. It's also now emerged that Davies may have had another open secret in Parliament. Sky News reports this. Speaking to Sky News after the party suspended Mr. Davies, one Labour MP said, quote, he would openly boast about bringing escorts and prostitutes onto the terrace and show them off. They said party officials had warned him to stop doing it, but no formal complaints have been made against him, adding, they can't take any action over hearsay. The claims were backed up by a Labour peer from the House of Lords who saw him on the terrace with young women and said there was always talk of him, quote, favouring Eastern Europeans. The MP described Mr Davies, who represents Swansea West, as, quote, a wrongen and a, quote, sleazy man, saying, quote, he would look you up and down, make lewd comments and touch you around the waist when he came up behind you. Labour's Stephen Kinnock appeared on ITV News this morning, where he was asked this. Brian Davis's behaviour is described in this report as an open secret within the Labour Party. Were you aware of these allegations? Westminster is awash with rumours and counter-rumours, and I genuinely just try to not get engaged in those rumours because 
it, at the end of the day, what you need is to base decisions and actions on facts and proper investigations. Uh, and I think that that's why it's so important that formal complaints are made, that people feel that they can be confident in making those complaints, uh, and that then the facts are established and the right action is taken as a consequence of those facts being established. Uh, I I really try only to deal in facts, uh, not in what you might hear in, in the tea room. That classic combination there of highly honourable and yet completely evasive. In a statement to Politico, Davies said this, I don't recognise the allegations suggested and do not know who has made them. None of them, as far as I know, has been lodged as complaints with the Labour Party or Parliament. If I have inadvertently caused offence to anyone, then I am naturally sorry, as it is important that we share an environment of mutual and equal respect for all. Is something else Gerard Davies once said. During the 2015 leadership election, Corbyn proposed female-only carriages on trains to protect women from sexual harassment, an idea already implemented in other cities around the world. And this is how Geraint Davies responded on social media. Apartheid for women on our trains, no thanks at Yvette for Labour. I couldn't possibly comment, but make of that what you will. Barnaby. The fact that we have an MP who may have been taking sex workers into the House of Commons and his colleagues didn't do anything about it. I mean, this boggles the mind, doesn't it? Well, I wish it did. You know, the truth is it's a year ago now, almost a year ago, that unions representing over a thousand workers across Parliament warned that Parliament was an unsafe working space for women. They said that in an open public letter. That was a year ago. By that point, six Tory MPs had already been openly involved in sexual misconduct scandals, including one of them who Boris Johnson made chief whip, Chris Pincher, while knowing that he was uh, uh, not to be trusted uh, in terms of sexual misconduct. Um, a Labour MP, John Woodcock, was mid-investigation for sexual misconduct, resigned from the Labour Party because he wanted to get out of that investigation, uh, and was made a cross-bench peer in the House of Lords. So just think what message that sends. If you were harassed by John Woodcock uh, and you see that he resigns amid the investigation and rather than facing any kind of sanction, he's then elevated to the House of Lords where he wears nice robes and gets paid hundreds of pounds a day to turn up for debates. It looks like a culture of impunity. I think we should also add the recent example of um, Neil Coyle who's an MP in South London. Uh, it's not just allegations with him. There have been complaints which were upheld in relation to sexual harassment and, of course, uh, the use of racist language to a political journalist. Uh, he has been allowed back into the Parliamentary Labour Party. He was suspended. He lost the whip. He now has the whip back. Uh, so there's a pattern here. And you say impunity. I mean, I don't really see the punishment for Coyle. Um, I want to take a quick look at one person's reaction to the news of Davies' suspension. It comes from the king of the centrists, a man more melty than a flake 99 in a heatwave, LBC's James O'Brien. He posted this on social media. Blimey, story drops an hour ago and he's already suspended. And rightly so. Boris Johnson, of course, would have made him deputy chief whip and then lied about it. How do you make a story like this about the Tories and Boris Johnson? I have no idea. First of all, James, the suspension only happened because a news story broke. Despite being an open story in the Parliamentary Labour Party, absolutely nothing was done about this alleged sex pest until his victims spoke to the press. But second of all, if you're so concerned about justice for abusers, have a chat with your man Keir Stum, because like I say, just last week, he reinstated Bermondsey and old Southwark MP Neil Coyle. 
That's after he was found to have racially abused a journalist, verbally harassed a parliamentary aide, and sexually harassed a female activist. Honestly, how do you make a story about a Labour MP behaving like this about Boris? O'Brien suffered from serious Corbyn derangement syndrome. And now I feel like he's overcompensating because even when a horrific story like this is unearthed about Labour, it's actually brilliant news for Keir Starmer. James, put your pom-poms away. Next story. The government had a deadline of 4pm today to hand Boris Johnson's unredacted WhatsApps, diaries and notebooks to the COVID-19 inquiry. And, you guessed it, they completely ignored it. At a summit in Moldova before the deadline, Rishi Sunak was asked whether he would hand the materials over. In the past, Prime Minister, you've said that your government will have integrity, professionalism and accountability at every level. Does that mean that you're going to follow the deadline of 4pm London time today to comply and send unredacted messages to the COVID inquiry that's taking place? Well, I think it's really important that we learn the lessons of COVID so that we can be better prepared in the future. And we're doing that in a spirit of rigour, but also transparency and candour. We've cooperated, the government's cooperated thoroughly with the inquiry today, handing over tens of thousands of, of documents. And we will continue to comply, of course, with the law and cooperate with the inquiry. We're confident in our position, but are carefully considering next steps. And just to double check, would you be willing to take this subject to court? As I said, we've been long cooperating with the inquiry. Important that we learn the lessons of COVID so that we're well prepared in the future. Government's considering very carefully next steps, but it's confident in its position. So why are the government holding the documents back? According to Independent, it's about setting a precedent. The paper reports this. Whitehall officials are concerned about the wider precedent that will be set by handing over swathes of unredacted WhatsApp conversations with fears that the inquiry will seek similar levels of disclosure from other senior figures, including Mr. Sunak himself. It's important to remember that the government under Boris Johnson set this inquiry up. It also set the terms of reference for the inquiry's chair, that's a Baroness Hallett, and those terms set the parameters of what she would be looking into, and they are very wide indeed. They include a number of aims, quite a few different angles, and hundreds of avenues of inquiry. But when it comes to ministers, here's the crucial bit. Aim one, examine the COVID-19 response and the impact of the pandemic in England, Wales, Scotland, and Northern Ireland, and produce a factual narrative account, including... A, the public health response across the whole of the UK, including how decisions were made, communicated, recorded, and implemented. Since it's already known that the government ministers used WhatsApp to coordinate and make decisions, Hallett sees them as relevant evidence for her inquiry. Now remember, it was the government itself that set those terms. There's no stitch-up or conspiracy here. Their refusal to hand the full set of documents to the inquiry thus makes it likely the matter will have to be decided by a high court judge, with the Cabinet Office now seeking a judicial review of the Hallett's authority. If that judge sides with the government, it also sets a dangerous precedent. That's because the Cabinet Office has tried to redact various documents, arguing that they want to remove information they regard as, quote, unambiguously irrelevant. If they win this battle, it may mean that in the future, government officials and not the heads of independent inquiries will decide what is and isn't relevant. And that would mean the idea of an independent inquiry would be even more watered down than it already is. 
These shenanigans are also damaging public trust in the inquiry. As you can see there, polling by YouGov shows only 24% of the public have any confidence in the inquiry. That's compared to 60% who have either not very much or no confidence in it. Pretty sad for an exercise that so far cost at least £85 million. And that's before there have even been any hearings. The government does appear to have behaved pretty badly so far. Initially, they said they didn't have Johnson's documents. But yesterday, in a transparent attack on Sunak's government, a spokesperson for Johnson said this. All Boris Johnson's materials, including WhatsApps and notebooks requested by the COVID inquiry, has been handed to the Cabinet Office in full and unredacted form. Mr Johnson urges the Cabinet Office to urgently disclose it to the inquiry. The Cabinet Office has had access to this material for several months. Mr Johnson would immediately disclose it directly to the inquiry if asked. While Mr Johnson understands the government's position, he does not seek to contradict it. He is perfectly happy for the inquiry to have access to this material in whatever form it requires. Mr Johnson cooperated with the inquiry in full from the beginning of this process and continues to do so. Indeed, he established the inquiry, but he didn't realise how far it was going to go. He looks forward to continuing to assist the inquiry with its important work. I mean, I have to say, the fact that Boris Johnson set up this inquiry, I mean, wow. I mean, it's a joke that people make about Boris Johnson as a, as a person, a politician. He, he destroys and corrupts and taints and tox toxifies everybody's life around him. I mean, that's, it's somewhat true. But my goodness, if, if Boris Johnson is responsible for an inquiry that destroys the political career of not only his successor, but every prominent Tory, including those who no longer support him uh, and would love to see the back of him, from politics altogether, I think that's a rather fitting end to his career. Next story. 50 Tory MPs, including four former cabinet ministers, have demanded that the government scrap inheritance tax. You heard that right. They don't want to lower the rate. They don't want to raise the threshold. They want to bin it completely. The campaign is being led by the Conservative Growth Group. That's a coalition of MPs allied to flash in the pan PM Liz Truss. And one of those is former Chancellor Nadim Zahawi. Now, you might remember him from when he tried to run for Tory leader after Boris Johnson's resignation. However, his complicated financial arrangements led to this awkward interview on Sky News. Is it true that your family benefits from an offshore trust? My family does not benefit from an offshore. I don't benefit from an offshore trust, nor does my wife. Um, we don't benefit at all from that. Um, my mother and father live abroad. Um, uh, that's you know, their, their business. They're not, they don't live in the United Kingdom. Have you ever had non-DOM status? I've never had non-DOM status. Have you ever used an offshore company to avoid tax? Never have used an offshore company. Has your family? My family, my wife has never been non-DOM. She's never used offshore status or a company to avoid tax. Have you told us everything about your business affairs that could potentially impact on your future ability to be Prime Minister? Yes, I have. Have you ever used offshore companies or services firms based in tax havens for the purchase of property or properties in the UK? No, I have. Have you fully declared all of your properties in the MP's register of interests? Yes, we have. Did you pay the requisite taxes, including stamp duty, when purchasing properties? Yes. Uh, you or your company uh, once held £20 million of Yugo shares in a Gibraltar-based company. Uh, what was the reason for using offshore financial structures like this, if not for the purpose of avoiding tax? I was not a beneficiary of um, uh, the uh, Balshaw um, investment that hold, held those uh, shares. Um, and Who was? 
my family. It's a, it's a public record. Um, uh, my my father. But, but why would you do that if it wasn't for the purpose of avoiding tax? Because he's he lives abroad. He doesn't live in the United Kingdom. Okay, two final questions, if I may. Just to clarify, 110%, obviously you're Chancellor, so you know you can't be 110%, but just work with me here. Um, there is no way that any funds are being funneled into your parents' accounts or whatever, so to keep your hands clean. Uh, absolutely. Those shady financial arrangements didn't just result in a difficult interview. They also led to Zahawi being sacked as chair of the Tory party when it emerged he'd paid a seven-figure fine to HMRC over tax irregularities. So colour me surprised that the man who doesn't like paying any tax is against inheritance tax. In a piece penned for The Telegraph, Zahawi says this. The most natural feeling in the world for any parent is to want to look after their children. This feeling is so powerful that it stays with us until our last breath and even beyond. We all want to leave the world a better place for those who follow us and leaving behind what we have built and earned in life is a crucial part of that. But those assets from the family homes, the rainy day fund are all at risk of being taken away from our kids by the only other force as ineluctable as death, the tax man. Inheritance tax is that other spectre that haunts us alongside death, as well as it's awfully morbid, isn't it? As well as being morally wrong to take someone's assets on their death. I think he's kind of, uh, I think he's worried about something here. Maybe, maybe I'm wrong. It also creates all sorts of inefficient and damaging distortions in our personal finances and the wider economy. We all want to leave the world a better place for those who follow us and leaving behind what we have built and earned in life is a crucial part of that. How noble. Just for the record, I also want to leave the world a better place for the many generations that will come after us, the innumerable thousands of generations that come after us. But Nadim Zahawi isn't thinking in those terms. He wants to leave all of his wealth to his kids. Now, at the moment, you don't pay inheritance tax on any assets up to the value of £325,000. And if you leave any amount above that threshold to your spouse or civil partner, you don't pay anything on that either. Anything that you leave to your kids over 325000 is taxed at 40%, except if it's your home. Then, if you leave it to your kids, it can be worth up to £500,000 without accruing any tax. So here's an example. You die with a house worth 600000 with another 200000 in the bank, lucky you, and you want to leave it all to your children. Just £120,000 goes to the treasury, meaning after tax, those kids will still stand to inherit £680,000. That's a tax rate of just 15%, a lot lower than income tax. Of course, the wealthier you are, the higher that rate becomes. This graph from the Telegraph is based on the data from the Office for Budget Responsibility. It shows how Treasury income from inheritance tax has increased over time. In 1999, HMRC took just £2 billion of inheritance tax. By 2022, it had increased to £7 billion. And by 2027, inheritance tax revenues are expected to be over £8 billion. If inheritance tax has been growing, so has wealth. So where has it been coming? from? As ever with the UK, the answer is very simple. Property prices. This graph is from the accounting firm RSM. It compares the percentage by which house prices have grown since 2010 to the percentage by which inheritance tax revenues have grown in the same period. You can see, see a real correlation here. And that property prices increase in line with inheritance tax, but inheritance tax increases faster than property prices. Why? Because between 2010 and now, house prices have grown by 76%, while inheritance tax revenues have grown by 197%. 
And as time goes on and house prices grow, more and more properties find themselves above the taxable threshold. That's why that line is significantly higher. Now let's go back to that Zahawi article. As a self-made man, I'm proud to think that alongside giving to charities, I will be able to leave behind something to my family, something, when my race is finally run. This is human nature, and even more true for the less affluent than it is for the wealthy, not that he would know. According to the Treasury, 93% of people who die aren't liable for any inheritance tax. So binning inheritance tax directly helps hardly anyone, although it does deprive the Treasury. And of course, they have to get that money from somewhere else instead. And for many of the 7% that are taxed, there isn't much self-made about it. Ask the Duke of Westminster. It's more a feature of buying a house in the right place at the right time for most people. A fairer way of reducing their inheritance tax bill is to control property prices, perhaps, something that the market looks like it may be doing anyway if house prices are to be believed because they've been falling since November last year, at least if measured annually. So who is Zahawi's proposal really for? Well, it's for people like him, the very wealthy who own multiple properties. As reported, while he was Chancellor, Zahawi owns a £100 million property portfolio, £100 million making him one of the richest MPs in Parliament. His kids or other family would stand to gain around £40 million from property alone if inheritance tax was scrapped. £40 million is what this would mean to him. Maybe it's just me, but it seems like he's campaigning to save himself some cash. Like I say, tens of millions of pounds. But I think there may even be a more insidious reason for putting inheritance tax back on the political agenda. As prices fall, property begins to look like a less secure vehicle for wealth growth, and investment flight from the property market affects the wealth of those heavily exposed to it, like Zahawi. But what better way to make that market more buoyant than to, for instance, get the government to cut inheritance tax rates on property by the next election? Now, I think this is a clear conflict of interest. It's like an MP who owns a brewery trying to scrap tax on lager. And most concerning of all, it's done in plain sight and with seeming impunity. Zahawi is talking about these things in some of the country's most prominent newspapers. That says something very toxic about our political system in this country. Next story. The Sisters of Mercy were established in Ireland in 1831. Their convent on Harding Street in East London was built a few decades later in 1859. Today, they're a global network of more than 6,000 nuns who focus on alleviating poverty and, in particular, homelessness. That should be no surprise. After all, the very first Sister of Mercy, Catherine McCauley, used her inheritance to build a woman's homeless shelter. I wonder what Nadim Zahar would make of that. Besides the more typical pledges of poverty, chastity, and obedience made by nuns, the Sisters of Mercy also take a fourth, less typical vow. This is interesting. Service to those in need. And yet, earlier today, that same order worked hand-in-hand hand with the police to make people homeless. Last September, a group of activists squatted the disused 88 Harding Street, the site of a former convent, and turned it into a homeless shelter. The building has 25 bedrooms now. According to UK squatting law, it's not unlawful if the building is commercial. That's how it's been since 2012, when the Cameron government changed legislation. The housing activists squatting this building claimed it was a mixed-use commercial building. In other words, what they were doing was not unlawful. It was legal. Now, a range of housing experts agreed with that conclusion, while the mayor for Tower Hamlets, Lutva Rahman, wrote to the police telling them to back off. 
if this was a squatting a non-residential property, then the owners would need to serve an eviction notice, get a court order, and proceed to use bailiffs. After all, that would mean it's a matter of civil law, not criminal law. Big difference there. But the Metropolitan Police disagreed. They sent this letter to the squatters on April 30th, claiming that the building was residential and that the squat was therefore covered by law. You can see them appealing to the relevant legislation there. And so earlier on today, dozens of riot police broke into the building to remove activists and those living in the building alike. Here you can see them lining up to remove those nasty people helping the homeless. Thank goodness they're there to ensure the building will be empty again by tea time. Here was a clip of the police speaking to activists after they were evicted. As I said, there's a 35 dispersal order in place. Uh, Pitsy Street, Watney Street, Commercial Road and the Highway, so this area needs to be dispersed. I'll ask you to run, but if you could just slowly make your way away, I'd be appreciated. To reiterate, the guys in jumpsuits aren't regular police officers. They're members of what's called the Territorial Support Group, the TSG, the literal riot squad. This is not uh, me taking liberties. The literal riot squad. You see there with NATO helmets. So to empty a building used by dozens of homeless people, the Met uses dozens of coppers. But of course, if you're mugged or assaulted, then good luck getting anything more than a crime reference number. The police aren't there to solve crime after all. And to repeat, it seems likely that they shouldn't have been there in the first place because no criminal offence was being committed. A civil one was. And yet, the attack on the evicted occupants looks like it was pretty savage. People appear to have been pushed to the ground, handcuffed and taken away in vans. And from what we know, at least one man was taken to hospital after being injured in the raid and the events that followed. The people tasked with keeping the peace created a situation of public disorder. As anyone familiar with the riot police knows, that is all too often the case. The Metropolitan Police has been found time and time again to be a law unto itself. You know, when we've had a report recently, the Casey report, that showed institutionalised sexual harassment, racial harassment, corruption. Uh, we had cops making money on the side while <laughs> abusing women and members of ethnic minorities. And the response from the government and from the Labour Party was to demand more cash to an unreformed metropolitan police. You know, this is a pattern across our societies. I'm speaking to you from New York, where uh, a, a debt ceiling deal has just been reached in Congress to uh, cut money for people on food stamps, money uh, 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 to cut money for some of the poorest people in this society, while handing money to the Pentagon, which swallows trillions and can't even pass an independent audit. So the lesson here is that these institutions, whose role it is to be the last line of defense of property and power in our societies, they get cash handed to them again and again and again, however corrupt they are and however much they fail um, uh, at the basic standards of our society. Um, they get cash handed to them through their corruption. They get cash handed to them through their harassment and discrimination. I think the only solution now, which people are starting to discuss, is to shut down police forces like the Metropolitan Police because the cultures that pervade them and to shut down those bodies like the Home Office that run them, the cultures that pervade these institutions are clearly not cultures that are about tackling corruption, about transparency about delivering for victims. They are instead about protecting those in positions of privilege and power. And that's been ingrained in their cultures for years now. We've had report after report showing it and nothing changes.
We should just mention that two days before this raid, we published uh, this report by Rivka Brown about the situation at the shelter in East London. So if you're interested about in this story, rather, reading more about it, you can do so. It's up there at navarramedia.com. The link is also in the description below. Great story, by the way. Um, personally, I hope the Sisters of Mercy repent their sins and ask for forgiveness, because my goodness, uh, throwing dozens of people out of a homeless shelter so it can be empty again seems like the opposite of Christian charity to me, but what do I know? I'm not a, I'm not a global religious order. Next story. Believe it or not, my favorite newspaper is the Financial Times. Because the truth is that the elites rely on good, accurate information to make money. The propaganda you find in the, the Sun and the Express and the Mail, that's for the little people. It's not for them. But I have to say my confidence in the FT, and in particular its political reporting, took a real knock this morning. And that's because Politico have reported that Sebastian Payne, previously the FT's Whitehall correspondent until just six months ago, is looking to succeed Nigel Adams as the Conservative MP for Selby and Ainsty. Now, when it was repeatedly put to Payne that he was looking to become a Conservative candidate, he was never sure, he always denied it or was ambivalent. And it was often something he strenuously denied. Here he is speaking to Ian Dale in January. Is this a stepping stone to a political career? I thought that question might be coming next at that <laughs> so point. So predictable, aren't um, I? I know, well, I have a variety of Boris Johnson-esque answers ready for you. But I think what I would say is I've got this really good um, opportunity onward. That is my singular focus at present. And, you know, who knows what the future will bring. So that's a yes. That is, I am fully focused on, onward and making no, sure... The, the key the key words were there were at present. I'm really excited to get stuck but in what, onward. why be so coy? Because actually, I think it's a noble thing to have political ambition. And what you often find, and you will have had this over the years with various politicians who are seen as sort of on the up, and you say, well, would you like to be prime minister one day? And they go all coy and say, well, no, I mean, obviously, I'm constant. I, I don't see myself in that league, etc., etc." You think you absolute fucking liar. <laughs> I think one person I remember who did that was actually was Jess Phillips and Tom Tuckinhat, who have both run for leadership positions. And I remember uh, Mr. Tuckinhat, who's now the security minister, someone just said to him, do you want to be prime minister? And he was like, of course. And you can see the interview was almost yeah, alarmed at that exactly. point because of that. Well, look, the reason that I'm saying what I'm saying Ian, is because I've just started a new job and talking about what I might do in the future is not helpful towards no, the new organisation. I, I can see. But that. I can see that. What I will say is that, as I said, if you hear what I said about winning the big arguments about trying to do things that matter for the future of the country, did you catch that at the end? Winning the arguments, winning the debates. So when he was the leader writer at the Financial Times and later a correspondent there, was Sebastian Payne writing things as he saw them, trying to be at least somewhat impartial, or was he trying to, quote, win the argument then too? Is that how we do reporting in this country now? Not, here's what happened, this person said this, this person said that, but these are my facts, they suit me and my ambitions, and bugger even attempting a semblance of objectivity. Now, we talk about the revolving door between corporate interests, lobbying, the media and politics in this country all the time on this show, and it's a major problem. But this really is up there at the top for bad examples. You see, Payne wasn't a columnist or a pundit. He wasn't a TV presenter. He was a Whitehall correspondent. Presumably, he wanted to be an MP while he did it. His job was to be a cat among the pigeons. But it's possible that when it came to the Tories, he removed his claws and filed his teeth because he wanted to join them. Barnaby, there won't be much coverage of this story, but it says a lot, and I think actually it says 
something quite central to our politics in this country and about how rotten it is. You're absolutely right, Aaron. Journalists imagine themselves speaking truth to power, but they go to the same schools as politicians and bankers. They attend the same dinner parties as politicians and bankers. They then send their kids to the same schools as politicians and bankers and hang out with them at the school gates. Some of them, like Sarah Vine, are even married to politicians and plenty of others, I'm sure, married to bankers. And when Noam Chomsky was being, when Noam Chomsky was being interviewed by Andrew Marr and Andrew Marr was, was, was quizzing him forensically about the idea that there could be propaganda in democratic Western societies. And he said to Noam Chomsky, do you really think I, as a journalist, am self-censoring? And Chomsky said, no, I'm sure you believe every word you're saying. It's just that if you didn't believe it, you wouldn't be sat here. Our media is selected from a narrow class of people with a narrow set of beliefs. You saw it during the Corbyn years when they all considered, though they, I'm sure, vote different ways, are different journalists, but within a certain kind of narrow window. And they all considered that someone like Jeremy Corbyn was just so preposterous, so far outside that window that he wasn't to be taken seriously. And so the way that the world is reported back to us when we turn on our TV screens and open our newspapers reflects not a, a, a simply accurate and transparent picture of the world, but the worldview of a certain social class. And that means that for many millions of people, there's a crisis of representation because there are few political leaders who speak for them. Uh, when they voted for, for left-wing leadership of the Labour Party, that was turfed out, even against their will, with a candidate, Keir Starmer, who claimed he was going to represent them and then didn't. And then journalists don't represent them either. And the worrying thing here is a 15-year project by the British Conservative Party to remake the state and all of its apparatuses, including those apparatuses like the media, which seem independent. So while the Conservative Party is cutting the social wages that many of us rely on by cutting public services from 2010, while they're cutting real wages using, using uh, inflation as an excuse now, while they're trying, some of them, to get rid of inheritance tax to protect uh, the wealth of the boomers when they die so that that wealth is handed on to their kids and not redistributed properly. Huge asset transfer that's going to take place. While they are, in other words, trying to lock down the wealth of the rich and protect most people from access to that wealth, at the same time, they're installing a chairman at the BBC who will do their bidding for them. Uh, they're trying to privatise Channel 4 News to ensure that it can't ask challenging questions. They give interviews to Rupert Murdoch's Talk TV and the right-wing GB News to try to set up alternative uh, uh, right-wing uh, media centres. Um, uh, uh, while changing the terms of Ofcom uh, to limit uh, uh, free speech in our media and while we have very aggressive libel laws that make it hard to criticise powerful people. Uh, then they set up public inquiries run by people they like and then when those people ask questions they don't like, as has just happened with the COVID inquiry, they try to refuse to cooperate. So you see here a kind of power grab by the state trying to ensure that the media doesn't ask difficult questions, that inquiries can't do their work properly, while ensuring that wealth flows to those at the top and not to everyone else. So if in that context, a journalist um, uh, positioning himself as an independent commentator, in fact, is doing the work of the Conservative Party, I think that's very telling about the kinds of lack of pluralism and democracy that we have in a society that claims to be uh, so democratic that it can lecture others about democracy all around the world, Aaron. A key point as well in regards to Sepp Payne is he literally came up with the idea of the Red Wall, right? This was the guy that mainstreamed the idea of the Red Wall into political discourse. It was a campaigning tool for the Conservatives. Now, how did that happen? How did that happen? Who was he talking to? Why did he do it? You know, he's now going on to BBC or wherever, ITV, Sky, as this, you know, center-right think tank. He's trying to become a Conservative MP. 
This is public relations for the Conservative Party. And you, you mentioned there, Barney, about GB News or Talk TV. And, you know, it's very easy to, like, point at the outsiders, the newcomers. This is the Financial Times. Their Whitehall correspondent can't even be professional. That's how deep this sickness goes in this country. And an inability to maintain basic professional standards when it comes to upholding scrutiny of, of, of people in public office. Extraordinary. The FT's, like I say, is my favorite paper. It's, it's the most accurate, I think most interesting, best reported paper in the country. And this is happening there. Remarkable. Of course, this all happened in the aftermath of the revelations relating to journalist Nick Cohen and alleged sexual harassment over the best part of 20 years. That story was broken by the New York Times at the start of the week. And so far, only three outlets in the UK have covered it. The Telegraph, The National, and Us. But remarkably, that story was offered to the FT. The Daily Beast in the US captured the story well. They wrote this. The Financial Times has previously appeared dedicated to holding powerful institutions, including TikTok and the World Health Organization, to account over allegations of sexual misconduct. Fellow members of the British media, however, seem to deserve less of the UK-based paper's scrutiny, according to a damning New York Times report. Financial Times editor Madison Marriage and her team led a months-long investigation into the resignation of Guardian columnist Nick Cohen, I should say Guardian Observer Nick Cohen, with her reporting showed who her reporting showed left the paper after a sexual misconduct investigation. According to the Times, however, the Financial Times spiked the story, that's the NY Times, the Financial Times spiked the story, arguing Cohen did not have a large enough profile to warrant an FT story. The Financial Times likes to pride itself as the voice of common sense, particularly on matters relating to business. Yet they paid people to work on a project for months before the editor, Rula Kalaf, said, actually, you know what? This isn't a big deal. You know what? We've paid you thousands of pounds for months. We, we, we don't need to bother. It wasn't a big deal. He's not that famous anyway. Does that sound like business acumen to you? Or somebody who's going to be a serious enough person to run the FT? Because it doesn't to me. It was, a big enough, it was a big enough deal for the, for the NYT, the New York Times, so I, I think he's a big enough deal for the Financial Times. Or could it be that Calaf spiked a piece of reporting because it was criticizing an industry insider, perhaps? Does public relations now matter more than the truth and breaking important stories? Just a thought. Barnaby, the FT doesn't report on a story like Cohen, while its former Whitehall correspondent has been actively looking for a safe seat for the Conservative Party. What does that say about them? Well, Aaron, at the end of 2022, the editor of the FT said that Madison Marriage's investigations would be a 2023 priority. That's what she told the FT staff. We knew that Madison Marriage investigated matters of sexual misconduct. She'd done so before. And having said that her investigations into various industries would be a priority for the paper, when she started asking questions about British journalism, she was told to stop talking to witnesses. Then she was told to file the story in the opinion desk, not the news desk. And then when she did all that, the story was still nixed. The FT still uh, prevented uh, it from being published. And so it has to come out in the foreign press in the New York Times uh, because the British press isn't doing its job. This is part of a pattern where the New York Times ends up covering stories about the damage of austerity across Britain, ends up covering stories about the scandals of corruption in uh, contracts being handed out during the COVID pandemic. It's the foreign press that does these things because the British press is a neat kind of club that protects British power and doesn't ask tough questions. Um, We've also seen British journalists who pride themselves on being feminists and on standing up uh, for women 
uh, trying to defend Nick Cohen. Hadley Freeman, who spends much of her time uh, defending women, she says, by preventing trans women from accessing their spaces, uh, all in the name of keeping uh, women safe, um, uh, poured cold water on the Nick Cohen story online and said it wasn't worth talking about because he was just suffering. He was the real victim here, was the implication, because he was suffering from alcoholism. In fact, we have at least seven women claiming that Nick Cohen uh, made inappropriate advances to them, the most recent in 2018, and he says he was an alcoholic until 2016. So his defense doesn't stand up. But what happens is journalists are prevented from investigating in Britain by powerful figures within the industry. And then when they do investigate, women who claim to be on the side of women facing these kinds of uh, uh, challenges and horrors of harassment and abuse, then step in to protect their friends. It's an industry that protects itself. And the problem is it's an industry that's just too close to power and the state in Britain, as well as protecting its own big faces. Um, so it's a problem of corruption. And I think we've just covered on this show tonight so many problems of corruption, Aaron, whether it's um, uh, the police uh, protecting power and privilege, uh, not ensuring that homeless people can be housed by attacking a squat, whether it's uh, journalists standing up for their mates in the industry, whether it's journalists going on to careers as conservative members of parliament, they hope. We have a British state and society which is trying to protect wealth and power while uh, shielding the very richest from inheritance tax in the latest proposal from the Tory right, uh, while politicising the civil service in the latest proposal from the Tory right. Journalists and the state protecting wealth and power rather than asking tough questions and protecting those who need our help. It's a pretty disastrous situation, Aaron. Barnaby, I have a specific question for you because you're based in the US. How much of this problem in the UK is because all of our media, political, cultural elites are all in London, right? So it's literally several hundred, several thousand people, like you say, who went to school with each other, went to university with each other, sleep with each other, drink with each other, have children together. Whereas in the US, you know, you've got New York, you've got Washington. For, for tech, you've got obviously um, California, you've got the Bay Area, you've got LA, you've got bits of Texas, you've got Chicago. So you've got all these different sort of um, poles of attraction, whether it's entertainment industries or finance or government or, you know, tech. Whereas in the UK, everybody is in London. It makes it like a little goldfish bowl. Do you, do you think that makes the problem worse or am I, am I letting America off the hook? Well, actually, I think America and Britain are good parallels because in both America and Britain, wealth is concentrated at extreme poles. In America, it's not just one city, it's two coasts, the East Coast and the West Coast. And American elites refer to the rest of the country as flyover country. That is, when you catch a flight from New York to California, you cross over Kansas and Indiana and you don't really think much about them. And so in both cases, we have journalists asking the kinds of questions that are asked in big cities in two corners of the country or in Britain in one corner of the country. And not just across those big cities, because it's not like everyone in New York and California is being represented. In fact, just like London, these big cities are centres of enormous inequality. And you have journalists who live in small corners, in select postcodes or zip codes of those tiny parts of the country. So you have journalists in California asking the questions of the wealthy in California, journalists in New York asking the questions of the wealthy in New York, because those are the people they live with. Those are the people they go to dinner parties with. Those are the people they go to the theatre and the opera and the movie movies with. Those are their friends. Those are the people whose scandals they cover unless it gets too difficult and they want to stick up for their friends. Um, Britain, like America, has a highly, highly uneven political economy in which part of the neoliberal project of the last 50 years was taking apart 
that Keynesian attempt to mitigate uneven development by ensuring industrial pro prosperity across the north of England, the Midlands, South Wales, Scotland, the turn from a strategy of industry to a strategy of financialization concentrated wealth and power in a tiny corner of the country, the city of London, where finance made its billions. The same has happened in America with wealth concentrated away from Detroit and those what, what were once centers of industrial power concentrated instead in centers of finance and tech power in California and in the East Coast. And so as wealth concentrates in one place, journalists cluster in that place too. And so the questions asked in the rest of the country, whether it's a fentanyl epidemic, a series of drug epidemics in America, barely covered for years by the media until the far right is able to pick them up, or whether it's issues of post-industrial decline and community falling apart across, uh, for example, the north of England, those questions are just not enough asked by journalists who aren't based in those places. You don't arise as local journalists from those places covering those stories because the local press has also been decimated in recent decades in Britain. And so instead you get in both Britain and America only the concerns of small parts of the country. But it's not just a geographical problem. It's a problem of the imbrication of geography and class. It's small corners of the country and even smaller zip codes, postcodes within those corners where the wealthy live. Those are the voices that are amplified. And when the rest of us turn on the TV or open our newspapers, we're hearing what those people think about the world, how they see the world, and they call it all a democratic public sphere. Yeah, that's well said. I mean, I, I, I'm probably more inclined to that hypothesis than, than you are by the sounds of it. I mean, it's interesting. You look at the Neil Coyle story. Um, he was found to have uh, sexually harassed a, a, a young woman. That story, he was found to, it was, you know, it was upheld, that complaint. That story was broken by the Scotsman. Right. There were three uh, outlets in this country which have covered the Nick Cohen story, broken by the New York Times. One of them is based in Scotland. It's called The National. And, and so I think it, it, it probably does help where you have, and that's not to say that it's, there's anti-elites. These aren't anti-elite, but you have counter-elites, at least within the same country. At least they can scrutinize one another, right? Uh, but we don't have that. So I think Britain uniquely has high inequality, high centralization, a runaway elite, and they all converge and congregate in the same city. That's a major problem. It seems singularly bad from, from where I'm standing. Um, maybe France is similar, uh, but there are not many places like that. We've had a great show. We covered so many interesting stories. By the way, that story we broke about the um, squatted uh, nunnery. I love the fact we get to cover Navarra stories here on Navarra Live. Hope to do more of that in the future. Barnaby, thanks for joining me tonight. Thank you so much for having me, Aaron. It's been an absolute pleasure to be with you. Always my pleasure. And thanks everyone for tuning in. This show will be back again tomorrow at 6 p.m. You've been watching Navarra Media. Good night. This broadcast is brought to you by Navarra Media. Go to navaramedia.com/support.